Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a presentation that was delivered as part of the 2021 Acton Lecture Series, featuring Jessica Houghton-Wilson speaking on Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his fight against propaganda using art to force even an opposing heart to surrender. Through fiction, Solzhenitsyn provides a way to love our so-called enemies, encourage conversation rather than silencing, and, even when all appears despairing, open the door to hope. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Acton Institute's Acton Lecture Series. My name is Michael Matheson-Miller. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Acton Institute, and I'm delighted to have as our guest speaker today, Jessica Houghton-Wilson. Professor Jessica Houghton-Wilson is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas in the Classical Education and, Human- Educa- and Humanities Graduate Program. She's the author of three books, Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Katamatsov, which received the 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award. She's also the author of Walker Persky, Walker Percy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and The Search for Influence and reading Walker Percy novels. In 2019, she received the Hiat Prize for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. She is the co-editor of the volume Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, which is a collection of essays on the legacy of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I've read this book, or at least many of the essays. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. And she's very prolific. Uh, She has a couple of other books coming out uh, in the next year or two, The Scandal of Holiness, and Learning the Good Life. So currently, she's also preparing Flannery O'Connor's unfinished novel, Why Do the Heathen Rage, for publication. So we're delighted to have Professor Jessica Houghton-Wilson join us in our talk today. Thank you very much for for being here with us at the Acton Institute. Thank you for bringing me today. I do wish that this was a live audience. After all, I love people, and I enjoy doing these things because I care so much about people and so much about how we are all acting together as a culture. I think right now there is probably a lot of tension and fears, and I hear a lot of concerns, and it may be those concerns that brought you here today. If I can ask you to take a moment and jot down in the, the Q&A or the chat on the live stream If you would answer a question for me about why exactly you're here, to get a sense, maybe a reflect for yourself about why it is that you decided to spend your lunch break talking about Solzhenitsyn and hearing about ways in which he shows us how to fight against propaganda and to fight for truth. If you could just take a moment and and jot some of those ideas down, give us a sense of what it is that brought you here today. And as you're doing that, I'm going to surmise a few reasons that I would anticipate would bring you here today, at least some things that are weighing on my heart, some questions that I have and fears that I have that have led me to turn to Solzhenitsyn and consider the ways that he might be helpful for us in this cultural moment. Do we worry about being lied to? 
we worry about who has the truth, who's controlling the narrative. And we want to be wise about what's happening in the world. We fear that there are unseen manipulators of power out there who might silence us for saying the wrong thing. All of our many hours of experience on Twitter and Facebook and other outlets have convinced us that some ideas are welcome in those spaces and others are not. And we do not want to be canceled or silenced. Some of the propagators of news and media tell us to watch out for cultural Marxists and warn us about ideologies that corrupt the youth and are taking over our education system. And we want to know how to stop it. Do any of those feel familiar? These concerns are so valid. I feel them myself. But I've learned from Solzhenitsyn that these fears place the evil and its source out there. And the good in here. We're on the good side. We're fighting against evil power. We know the truth and the rest of the world seems to spout nothing but lies. In How to Think, Alan Jacobs asks us to consider if we know someone, just anyone who is intelligent and morally good on the other side from us. If we cannot think of a representative from that other side without assuming that he or she is stupid or evil, then perhaps we're not thinking as clearly as we should. Perhaps our thinking has been muddled by groupthink, by propaganda, by fiery rhetoric. Perhaps we're looking at the other side and only seeing enemies. Solzhenitsyn writes from the Gulag that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. May we update this to our particular cultural moment in America, that the line separating good and evil passes not through liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, the supposedly woke and traditionalists, but right down the middle of every human heart. How might Solzhenitsyn's understanding of the world help us to see differently and perhaps more accurately to see that good and evil both exist within each of us, as well as good and evil exist within each human being? Solzhenitsyn had to learn this the hard way in his life. He spent eight years in the prison camps and the gulags. Instead of going through such an experience, might we learn from his wisdom? If you're not familiar with Solzhenitsyn, let me just give you a brief bio of this amazing man. Uh, Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918. He died in 2008. He actually served the Red Army. He did believe in the communist ideals when he was a young man. And it was during this time in 1942 that he became uh, disillusioned with the communists. The way that they were going into Germany and destroying the German people, raping the German women, not treating anyone morally. They had no moral uh, dictates to uphold. And Solzhenitsyn began to see this as a problem. And he mocked them in letters to friends. And worst of all, he mocked Stalin. Well, worst of all, according to the communist, he mocked Stalin. And for this, he was arrested simply for protesting the way that the, the communist army was treating the Germans. For this, he was arrested in 1945 at first, because of his background in mathematics, he was sent to Marfino, which will come up later as we kind of unpack one of his novels. And this was less of a 
labor camp and more of a scientific research study. It was still a prison, but as we'll see in Solzhenitsyn's writing, he called this the, the first circle of hell. It was more like limbo, where they gathered together a bunch of prisoners to do scientific experiments on behalf of the, the Soviet Union. He was there until 1950, and then he went to the forced labor camps in 1950 to 1953, and it's during this experience where he laid bricks and, and did some of the things he talks about in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, more of the freezing temperatures and standing outside, starving. Um, they received less to eat. People were dying more often around them, etc. In 1953, when he was released, he thought his time of suffering was over, and then he was diagnosed with cancer. That's where his novel, The Cancer Ward, comes from, is those experiences. And then in 1962, Khrushchev actually published Solzhenitsyn's One Day of, in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, because Khrushchev argued um, there's a Stalin in each of us that we have to unroot. And he thought that this novel, which was exposing the horror of the gulag system, would actually purge the Russian people of their love of Stalin. And so Khrushchev allowed this novel to be published, which is kind of amazing. I mean, it's providential if you really think about it. And so one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich became this expose for the horrors of the communist regime and the way that they were treating their own people. He received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. He was unable to go and give his speech, but we will unpack a little bit about his speech this morning. And um, if he left, he was afraid he would never get back into Russia. A few years later, he actually was exiled for, even though he was publishing works outside of Russia, he was no longer allowed to be published in Russia, but he was, he was sneaking out his works, including in the first circle, which he snuck out in 1968 to be published elsewhere. Um, but because of the ways that he was arguing against communism, he was exiled. He did not return until 1994. He lived in Vermont for about 18 years. And during this time, he was prolific, still writing the same things that he was saying while he was in Russia. And he said this was the most productive time <laughs> in his entire life was these 18 years that he spent in Vermont recounting the horrors of the communist regime that he had suffered under. I'm going to tell you about my story, my way of interacting with Solzhenitsyn. Although I love Russian literature and I read almost every work of 19th century, I did not actually read Solzhenitsyn until Ed Erickson Jr. introduced me to Solzhenitsyn. And Ed Erickson Jr. is actually who we dedicate our book uh, in the life, um, sorry, Solzhenitsyn in American culture. Ed Erickson Jr. helped return Solzhenitsyn to widespread attention when he abridged the Gulag Archipelago. It was alongside the author in his home in Vermont that Ed worked, and he was able to get to know the Solzhenitsyn family very well. Um, if you have not had a chance to pick up the Solzhenitsyn reader that Ed actually edited with um, Dan Mahoney, then you should go ahead and do that. That is a collection of Solzhenitsyn's more well-known works, works and excerpts. But during this time that I got to know Ed because of my interest in Russian lit, I jokingly said, like, if you ever go to Russia, please invite me and bring me with you. And when the family, the Solzhenitsyn family, invited Ed to come over in 2011 to speak, they were gracious enough to allow me to tag along, and I got to know the family. And it was during those conversations and being in the space, you see there a picture of um, I'm in the apartment where Solzhenitsyn was arrested, and I'm standing next to his his wife and his son. And... I got to know him as a man in all of his particularity as much as I can from a distance because he had died several years before. But just to get to see the author 
not merely as a head, a figure who just created these works and birthed them from his mind, but as someone who lived these stories. And these stories were worth telling, even if it meant his expulsion from his country, even if it cost him uh, the comfort of home. I think the heart of Solzhenitsyn's vision that we must understand is that freedom comes not when the barbed wire is cut, though he hoped for that, and not when the wall falls, though he did aid in its destruction, but when truth defeats lies. For Solzhenitsyn, only art has the power to confront the lies that destroy culture, that destroy lives. In his Nobel lecture, Solzhenitsyn insists on the nature of art to portray truth. Lies can stand up against much in the world, but not against art. Now, why is this true? Well, think about it. Art actually calls the person towards something beautiful. Solzhenitsyn would recall how he used to save the bread in the gulags when he was starving and you only received a small ration and he would take it and he would ball it up into a bead and he would create a rosary like he saw the Catholics doing. But instead of actually saying prayers, each one of those bread beads became a line of poetry and it was reciting verse and composing works solely from memory that gave his life meaning even in the midst of the camps. When Solzhenitsyn gave his uh, Nobel Prize speech, rather he sent it to be given on his behalf, he said, there is, however, a certain peculiarity in the essence of beauty, a peculiarity in the status of art. The convincingness of a true work of art is completely irrefutable, and it forces even an opposing heart to surrender. I think this becomes the foundation for how it is that we talk to our enemies. We talk to them through things that are irrefutable, like beauty. Solzhenitsyn says it's impossible to compose. It is possible to compose an elegant outward speech, right? A headstrong article and so forth. But all of those things can be lies. What is hidden, what distorted will not immediately become obvious. And then you can have another side present just as elegant an argument, but it's all lies which is why such things are both trusted and mistrusted. Whereas political writers or speechmakers, they can contort and twist words to suit their needs. They can manipulate audiences through their mastery of rhetoric. But the goal of the artist is to make something beautiful and universal and not limited to the use of the immediate moment. It's something that's transcendent and cannot be reduced. And even more than the message of the art, it's the beauty of the work that speaks to the soul of the person and reminds him or her of the greater destiny than just to respond to the headline. In Solzhenitsyn's fiction, then, we see his great answers for confronting the lies of culture. He composes massive works of beauty that show how good and evil within unfinished human beings, within prisoners, which were called zeks in the gulags, within guards, within even Stalin, the man himself responsible for Solzhenitsyn's unjust imprisonment. In the First Circle is my favorite novel by Solzhenitsyn, um, the one that I always recommend that people start with. It was published in pieces, as I, as I said, and smuggled a, away from Russia and then actually published in Britain. It did not see its full publication until 2009, until after Solzhenitsyn himself was dead. And the novel, as I said, draws its title from Divine Comedy. 
like those spirits who reside in limbo, those in the Sharashka, the scientific institute, have committed no real crimes. They're indicted according to Article 58, part of Stalin's purge. And Solzhenitsyn was among the unhappy millions with them. Solzhenitsyn himself believed in the communist ideology when he was young, but it was a decade serving in this gulag system, nearly dying of cancer and feeling exiled and silenced. Only after all of this suffering did Solzhenitsyn reject the materialist ideology of Marx and return to the orthodox faith that he was taught by his mother. There's a key passage in the novel that I want to talk about in which Solzhenitsyn shows you how this change came to be for him as a character. He puts himself into the novel. He was a Marxist, as, as said, and so when he was in Marfino, he, was, he met another Marxist, Lev Rubin, who was based on Lev Koplev. And the two of them have a dialogue within this novel. Now, Koplev was a propaganda officer, also serving in the, in the Red Army, just as Solzhenitsyn had. And he was arrested for bourgeoisie humanism and a compassion for the enemy. In the scene that we're about to play for you, the two of them argue violently for and against communism. So I want to play out the scene in two different slides, and then I want to unpack it for what we can learn about how to have these kinds of dialogues without actually silencing um, those who are on the other side. I've asked Michael Miller if he will help play this dialogue out with me. But I refuse to use your terminology. I refuse to talk about what you call capitalism and socialism. I don't understand these words and I won't use them. I suppose you prefer the language of utter clarity. What do you understand? I understand words like a family of one's own, the inviability of the person. Unlimited freedom, perhaps? No. Moral self-limitation. Now, what is being said here? Let's unpack it first before we jump into the next slide. What is being said in this scene is a difference between theories abstract look at the the isms and instead what's being offered is the concrete and the particular family a person and not in the sense of we're each licensed as autonomous individuals but what Solzhenitsyn is un uncovering in his character here in Mirjin um, in this conversation with Rubin is that the two of them although they were both originally communist what Mirjin is beginning to understand is that Communism didn't see him as a person. He was a number within the system that could be purged by Article 58. And he began to understand there was something more concrete, something which Solzhenitsyn, through novels, shows us that's inviolable, the personhood. And this is what he gets at in this conversation between persons. So with that frame in mind, let's look at a longer section in the text and imagine these two persons having this really important conversation. How far will you get with amorphous? So may I start? Okay. How far do you get? How far will you get with amorphous yeah. protozoic concepts like that in the 20th century? Those are all class-conditioned ideas, dependent on. Are they hell? Justice is never relative. It's a class concept. Of course it is. Justice is the cornerstone the foundation of the universe. Anyone watching from a distance might have thought that they were about to start fighting. Sorry, that's narrative. We were born with a sense of justice in our souls. We can't and don't want to live without justice. You've got nowhere to hide. 
you will have to declare someday which side of the barricade you're on. That's just another word you blasted fanatics have done to death. You've put up barricades all over the world. That's the horror of it. A man may want to be a citizen of the world, a little lower than the angels, but they grab him by the legs and pull him down. Whoever is not with us is against us. Just leave me room to move in. Room to move in, I tell you. We would leave you room. It's the other side who won't. You would, you say. When did you ever let anybody move freely? It's tanks and fixed bayonets every inch of the way. Look, my friend. Look at it in historical perspective. To hell with your historical perspective. I want to live now, not in the long term. Okay, so what you see in this, I, I, I read that line that I wasn't supposed to read, but anyone from a distance might have thought they were fighting. So here you have two people engaging real ideas of importance in a conversation. It is such an example to us for how to actually have a dialogue. They're able to have genuine friendship in this moment, but they radically disagree with one another. They're able to get angry without it leading to canceling each other, silencing each other, missing each other's point. They're actually listening. They're responding to what one another says right? Um, justice is never relative. Of course it is. It's a class concept. They're talking to each other and not just having single monologues in which you see run side by side and never engage. This engagement, I, I would suggest, helps us to practice that same kind of engagement in our lives. By reading these kinds of dialogues, which take ideas seriously, but don't see ideas just as theoretical cognitive discourse, but as embodied persons articulating things that matter in the concrete world. And we look at this and we see this side versus this side, but they don't hide that. That's not an elephant in the room. It's a reality in which you, you're choosing sides and realizing they're both, they're both have problems. Neither side actually leaves room for the other by dividing that way. Instead, Reuben has to stop seeing in terms of sides and he has to hear what Nurjan is saying, which is instead of sides, what about people? What about people talking about things that matter? And how does that change how we live now and not theoretically in the long term? What Solzhenitsyn understood is in the ascent in the Gulag Archipelago, he talks about from these conversations, he actually began to understand what it means to be a human being in the world. And it took this time in prison for that to happen. He writes in the ascent, you are ascending. And he's talking not only to the reader, but he's actually talking to himself when he was in the camp. He's saying, formally, you never forgave anyone. You judged people without mercy. He's saying, you, old Solzhenitsyn, but also you reader, and you praised people with equal lack of moderation. And now an understanding mildness has become the basis of your uncategorical judgments. You have come to recognize your weakness and can therefore understand the weakness of others and be astonished at another's strength and wish to possess it yourself. It's a change of vision that occurred for Solzhenitsyn within the camps he writes of it very poetically, very beautifully. The stones rustle beneath our feet. We are ascending. Now it's not just the old Solzhenitsyn he's talking to and the reader by directing it at you, but now he's gathering you with him. 
we are ascending. Your soul, which was formerly dry, now ripens from suffering. And even if you haven't come to love your neighbors in the Christian sense, you are at least learning to love those close to you. It is particularly in slavery and imprisonment that for the first time we have learned to recognize genuine friendship. And what Solzhenitsyn had to do was to be stripped away of everything that he thought made him who he was, his identity with a political party, his way of dressing, the music that he liked, the food that he liked, all of that was taken away by the gulags until he was stripped down to his essential self. And it was in this position with his essential self and others' essential selves that he began to understand humanity for what it was and that these persons could have these conversations without the distraction of this is how I identify, this is who I think that I am. And you get to see that real essential personalism come out. What's amazing is that this experience in the prison did not harden Solzhenitsyn. It actually softened him. He not only learned to love those who, who differed from him. At, the, at this point in the prison camps, he learned to love Christians and then actually became one. But he also learned to love the guards. And he even learned to sympathize or understand someone like Stalin who was purely, I mean, as far as most of us are concerned, evil. I actually had a hard time imagining putting Stalin's face into this PowerPoint. I could only use a drawing or an illustration because I even struggle with that now, to be able to love your enemy. In the first circle, when he writes about Stalin, you get to see Stalin lounging in his study. He's actually paging through his own biography, which is a great example of how bent and tautological Stalin's vision was. Stalin mistakes himself as the center of the universe. He's fated to be emperor of the earth. He thinks he's more significant than any other human being on the planet. But he's locked within his own room because he fears assassination. This master enslaver himself is enslaved. And while Stalin is staying up at night in this vision in, in Solzhenitsyn's novel, he's attempting to perform some great scientific feat with the help of the Marfino, with those prisoners that he has locked away. He wants to contribute to philology, which is an obvious joke on Solzhenitsyn's part, because Stalin, of course, is not even able to engage rightly with words, right? He contorts them and misuses words, as we talked about in the beginning when we looked at the Nobel Prize speech, that these master rhetoricians don't care about language. And here you have Stalin trying to contribute to philology. But we also see that Stalin is lonely as Solzhenitsyn portrays him. There's no one he can consult. And he's so lonely because he had no one to try his thoughts out on and no one to measure himself against. So in contrast to the rest of In the First Circle, Stalin himself is not in dialogue with anyone. He's monologic. He speaks only to himself about himself and for himself. This is the masterstroke on Solzhenitsyn's part to make us feel empathy for this enemy and not make him a caricature, but a, a real person. And yet one who is suffering from his own echo chamber. I think this novel offers us a way out of our echo chambers. We see through multiple eyes in this novel and yet we remain ourselves. The novel in the first circle opens with a dialogue in which one person cannot understand the other. And I think hearing this vision of the world should warn us against reading the book and then returning to our own habits of polarization and distance from those who do not think like us. 
The novel opens with the main character, Inokinti Velodin. His name means the selfless one. And Inokinti has come to understand a plot uh, about the communists are actually planning to create the atomic bomb. And so he calls the American embassy to warn them about his commander's plan. But the distance between the two people on the phone, of course, also with the language barrier, causes major miscommunication. In a frenetic speech by Volodin, who's worried that he's going to be shot or arrested at any moment for making this phone call, the attache calmly responds, I don't quite understand. And one, of course, hears the American response to Solzhenitsyn's attempts to caution us. I don't quite understand, Solzhenitsyn. I don't get what you're saying. Listen, listen, Volodin cries in despair. But the attache still questions, who are you anyway? How do I know you're telling me the truth? Isn't this always the question? Those who say something we don't want to hear, how do I know you're speaking the truth? On whose authority do you speak? And Inokinti claims for evidence, don't you know what a risk I'm taking? This is the same evidence that Solzhenitsyn himself gives us in his life, that he risked his very life to tell the story of what was happening in Soviet Russia. And his risk gets him arrested the same way that Volodin's risk gets him arrested. I'd like to conclude with reading a prayer from Solzhenitsyn because I hope that we listen to him. Listen to a man who thought writing stories was a matter of life and death, and that we reading these stories might matter just as much for ourselves. And so I end with his prayer for Russia. You can, if you want, also see it as a prayer for America. Our Father, all merciful, don't abandon your long-suffering Russia. In her present days, in her woundedness, impoverishment, and confusion of spirit, Lord omnipotent, don't let her be cut short to no longer be. So many forthright hearts, so many talents you have lodged among the Russians. Do not let them perish or sink into darkness without having served in your name. Out of the depths of calamity, save your disordered people. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Um, we have some comments from... from uh, the viewers and some comments to your chat, which I'll get to in a second. But I just want to say, first of all, I really liked your presentation. I, I, I like how you cre created this tension with the philosophical project. We have to seek after the truth. And this is essential to Solzhenitsyn's work. And yet we can easily kind of objectify other people uh, who don't agree with, with us. And that can block us to the philosophical project. And one of the things that stood out to me is, especially in that last example, when you have this man coming to tell the truth and you, you say, and I think Solzhenitsyn and you are pulling out this, like the Americans aren't listening. The, the Westerners aren't listening. And so it makes me think of, of a couple of, of things like uh, Joseph Ratzinger said when the fall of the Soviet Union happened, th that it was that relativism did not die, that the still radical spirit of the age remained. It made itself into the West. Uh, Augusto del Noche before he died in 1989, same idea, that this idea is in the West. It's now everywhere in the West. And then, um, and of course, Solzhenitsyn, I think, who influenced both of them. So you, you have this tension between, well, we really need to get after the truth. We really need to be serious about the truth. There are problems out there, and yet we can't objectify. And, and I, think mm -hmm. that, I think that's, um, 
I think because it often goes one or the other. Like, if you're totally committed to the truth, then you just will shut everybody else down. Like, nope. Or, you know, you're just a softie. And I think Solzhenitsyn's a good model there. And I thought, you, I thought that was really good. So um, maybe one, one question, and then I'll get to the comments of why people were there. Um, you mentioned this um, element of um, what... What that we that we're blind because we're not in conversation sufficiently. So, what do you think to start out? What would you say? You know, you as you as you listed in the beginning of your talk. You know, we're worried about um, cancellation, deplatforming, uh, woke culture, certain elements of social justice. Um, but we also have blind spots because we're not in dialogue. We're not in actual debate, and so sometimes we can we can. Um, one thing I often say is sometimes our narratives are just less false. Than the alternative, they're not. They, maybe they're they're not. Maybe they're not as false, but they're less false. That they're not taking truth seriously. Um, what would you say um, would be some of the concerns or warnings you would have, maybe influenced by Solzhenitsyn, but also your own ideas of blind spots where what you could call broadly those who have a conservative traditionalist view, where 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 are the where are our blind spots? I would say. You know, I'm just jumping in with what our blind spots are, and so I'm I'm speaking as though there's this collective R, which is wrong. Sure. <laughs> that's part of the problem. Uh, the social system points out it in the novels is that each person is a is a person, and, and yes, we're part of a culture and we're part of a group. Um, but I I do think you already start to have a problem when you say R because mm-hmm. you lump people together, you reduce people's ideas, and so one of the blind spots. This might be that we identify by tribe and rather um, not understand ourselves as persons within this group and that we all have differences even among ourselves. So from what I've seen in the last, um, I'd say even the last few years has been this blind spot for West and Western culture. So I grew up with an idea that the West was dominant and, and it is beautiful, but what I've been unable to understand is a lot of the things that were pulled out of the West are true and good, and they can be found elsewhere. Now, cultures are always changing, and we want to understand what's absolute and what's universal and what's true. And especially as the West moves away from some of those truths, it's not the West that we have to protect and pass down. It's what are those universal human truths that the West lived and embodied for so long that we want to hold on to no matter where culture rises up and no matter where those goods take root. And I think that we have to um, see the means and ends correctly. The, the ends are these universal, beautiful, good, true things. And yes, they've been embodied in the West for a long time, but they can also be found in pockets in other places in the world. And if we're going to protect them and ha- hand them on, we have to see them in a larger identity than just the Western civilization. We have to see them as these are the universal, true human goods that have been passed down through the ages. And there's a lot of it that's been embodied in the West, but not only in the West. Good. Thank you. Maybe one, one more following on that. Um, I think you, you make an important point, you know, about how, that we sometimes think in us and them and like our blind spots, their blind mm-hmm. spots. Um, and and, um, I, and I, I think that's important. I think it's, it's something to be cautioned about. Um, and at the same time, I used R on purpose because, and maybe it was wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but I used it on purpose because um, I didn't want to say their blind spots. 
That is right. And so, and I think this goes to a, a, a question that I think you, you address here with Solzhenitsyn that Stalin was a wicked person. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He was wicked, but he was a person. And it's, it's important to remember in thinking of others that we don't simply objectify other people and say, okay, well, Stalin's the example of evil or Hitler's the example of evil, right? That, but in fact, as you point out, Solzhenitsyn's famous line, that evil runs through the human heart. So, and, and you see the, the, the French uh, philosopher, language and, and cultural critic, René Girard, has an essay in his discussion with, uh, about Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's a discussion where he's, Jesus is engaging the Pharisees and saying, you blame your, your ancestors for killing the prophets. And Gerard's reading is really, I think, important because he says what he, he argues what Jesus is doing is showing that because you scapegoat your ancestors, because you blame them and you make yourself innocent, it proves to me you're going to kill me. And it proves to me you would have killed the prophets. And I think it's very interesting, in, especially in revised Catholic liturgy, um, at in the Good Friday service, we just went through the uh, Paschal season. The Orthodox one is this week. And, um, and you, at the, in the revised, you say, crucify him. The, the people say, crucify him. Because if we think, well, I would have been the follower of Jesus who stayed by the cross, right? Then what happens is we, we end up preparing ourselves for evil. So um, how, do you, how do you think, you've, you've addressed this a lot, but maybe just a little bit more developing. How do we specifically avoid objectification of those people we disagree with while we still try to um, vehemently disagree and pursue the truth? I, I think it's not reducing people to caricatures of themselves the way that Solzhenitsyn tries to see them holistically and understanding that people are unfinished. So this is a, a term from Bakhtin that he talks about with Dostoevsky, that people are always in the process. So you can look, for example, at crime and punishment and Raskolnikov in the beginning of that story is evil. But by the time the novel ends, he's not. He's an unfinished human being. And most Really, unless you're going to read something like C.S. Lewis's um, Paralandra, where a guy literally becomes unmanned by Satan and is just taken over and possessed, human beings are unfinished for, and they don't really get taken over. There's always a chance. There's always you could be hanging on the cross next to the savior of the world and say, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right. So we have to see all people in that unfinished state. And we have to see ourselves as the worst of sinners. And this is what Paul talks about. This is what you see in Dante, that he had to go through hell, not to see how bad everyone else was, but he participates in some way in every sin in hell until he gets to the very bottom. And he discovers in the lowest part of hell that he has been the worst of sinners. He's, he's participated in all those sins. And it's only then that he can begin the ascent, right? We are ascending, as Solzhenitsyn says, up to purgatory. And I think all of us have to start with that complicity and also seeing other people as unfinished and not reduced uh, just to their to their bad ideas or their worst moments. Okay, good. Thank you. Here's a question from um, one of the audience, from Aaron. He says, my question is whether Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, ever met Solzhenitsyn when he lived there. Ask Bernie? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, okay. So I'm not a Solzhenitsyn biographer, so I'm not sure. I, I read a lot of Solzhenitsyn's ideas, but at the same time, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know his biography. Okay. All right. Okay. Another question from uh, a viewer, um, Bastiat. He's back. Um, does Solzhenitsyn ever reflect in his writings on how his novels embodied truth and how God's revelation to us is embodied in Jesus? I don't know. I, I'm trying to draw the last part. Um, I can say for sure the first part, how uh, these things, truth is embodied. Yes. And he talks a lot about that in his various speeches on beauty and what art is and the, the purpose for writing literature the way that he did. And I think that he would be drawing from that same idea that the word becomes the flesh. And this is an incarnational aesthetic that he would have shared with someone like Dostoevsky, who the centrality of the book of John for Dostoevsky made him write the way that he did. And I think we see that legacy in Solzhenitsyn's writings. Um, well, related to that, both Art and Dostoevsky, I, I have a question. Um, so in, in your talk, you're, you're, you quote from his Nobel Prize acceptance speech um, and when you say, the, the convincingness of a true work of art is completely irrefutable and it forces even an opposing heart to surrender and the, the importance of, of beauty. And here, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think, again, there's a parallel with what Joseph Ratzinger and Benedict XVI has written. When he, he makes this case before he was pope, um, probably influenced by Solzhenitsyn and some of the same influences, that um, the two things that are the most, the strongest argument for the Christian faith, Ratzinger says, mm -hmm. are the, the holiness of the saints and the beauty of the art that's come out of the church. Mm -hmm. And that everything else, and this is actually interesting because it really parallels with what you, what, you, what you read from Solzhenitsyn, everything else can just become a clever excuse to justify the darker periods of our history. He's mean the Catholic church. So it's entered the beauty of holiness and the holiness of beauty. And I know you're, you're working on a book on, on that scandal of holiness. So on the art question, so Dostoevsky of course has this very famous line that beauty will save the world. And um, I'm not always one to disagree with Dostoevsky, but I always say, well, if it's connected to truth and reason, because if beauty is not connected to truth, and to reason and the reality of the embodied, embedded human person, um, beauty also can lead you astray, can lead you, um, it can be used as propaganda. It can use, be used to desensitize people to evil. Um, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark addresses some of this question in some of his films about the relationship to art and totalitarianism and how art was used by totalitarians. And then just in our life, like if you're distracted by the beauty you can, in a sense, make that an idol. How does, how does Solzhenitsyn and you, because you're working on, on a lot of that area, how do you address that tension between beauty will save the world and beauty can lead you to hell? Well, I don't think that, I don't think beauty can lead you to hell. I think that you're misdefining beauty if you describe it that way. So I am talking about beauty in how it, it sources from God. But that doesn't mean that I can fully understand with my reason what is beautiful. So too often, I think that we conflate reason and truth, whereas I also believe that imagination can be a vehicle for apprehending truth and not only our reason, because there are things that transcend our reason. So for example, you know, a lot of people agree that when Notre Dame Cathedral burned down, tons of people were sending money to restore it because there's something beautiful there. They may not have been able to reason through why they did that, 
but there was beauty there that was speaking to them. When some people talk about beauty leading you to hell, they are talking about the objectification that you mentioned earlier, where you have taken something beautiful that shouldn't have been grasped, but as Hopkins, Gerard Manley Hopkins says, give beauty back, give beauty back to the giver of beauty. They're talking about something that doesn't have their source in the beautiful, um, but that has a pleasingness to the eye that actually leads you to try to objectify it, possess it, and not give it back to the giver, but actually possess it for yourself. And, and so there's a, there's a different motivation in the seer. There's a different source of the beauty. There's a way of describing it, not as something that speaks to your soul, but speaks, speaks to the pleasures of your eye. And so even when we're talking about beauty, I think we have to understand it more as something transcendent. And it can't, in that sense, be used for propaganda. Um, beautiful stories that are beautiful will be, as you said, true. That does not mean that they will be reduced under our reason and that we can reason through all the ways that they're true. If they're propaganda, they're not true and they're not beautiful. They just are not because they're not, they're not cohering with the reality as God made it. They are trying to manipulate people into a false version of the world. And in, in that sense, I think we're talking about something different than beauty or truth in, in those types of art. Okay, so that, so that in a sense, correct me if you think I'm, if I'm misrepresenting you, but that when, we, when, when Solzhenitsyn is talking about beauty and following Dostoevsky, um, you have this kind of Thomas's definition of ple- uh, causes delight, you know, pleasing the eye, causes delight when seen, but that it's, it's in a sense a holistic understanding of beauty and truth somehow connected as opposed mm-hmm. to simply... Um, so that for, correct me if this is wrong, so that beauty for Solzhenitsyn has to do with the manifestation of the truth in a sense, yes. whereas, yes. And, and goodness. what's that? I was going to say, and goodness. So you look at um, the New Testament, whenever um, Mary pours the ointment on Jesus's feet and then mops it up with her hair and Jesus says, a beautiful thing has been done here. Well, some people translate it as a good thing has been done here because in the New Testament, the word beautiful and good are so intimately connected in the Greek word. Is it kalos? Kalos. That it's used to mean the same thing. So beauty, truth and goodness are so tightly bound together because they come from the same source that anything that actually is beautiful or true or good is going to inspire the good response, is going to lead you to truth, is going to evoke uh, a feeling of beauty or a notion of beauty within you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And that also maybe even reflects on some of the, some of the suffering and the, the, uh, as it were, the apparent evil that, that, or the, sorry, the real evil that, that mm-hmm. Solzhenitsyn, that Solzhenitsyn artistically presents. He's also presenting the whole package is beautiful because it's true. And there's that connection. So I think, so is that, is that the, cause I think that's confusing to people, right? They get like, well, wait a minute, I can be taken away by beauty. Uh, and so Solzhenitsyn's meaning something much more holistic? Is that, am I getting that? Yeah. So I, you know, I've taught a whole course on the beauty of holiness based on David Lyle. Jeffrey has this, this book about Christianity and and art, and it's just a wonderful introduction to this idea of the connection between beauty and holiness. Um, and what Solzhenitsyn is talking about is something that is transcendent and moving you upwards. And I think, uh, what I often tell students is you can think something's beautiful and be wrong. You actually have to be trained in what's beautiful. Just like you have to be Mm -hmm. trained to know the truth, just like you have to be trained in moral behavior to know the good we have to be trained and cultivated in these things. And that's why it's so important in our culture 
that we do that kind of training. And it's something that we're really missing right now. We're not training people towards any of those three ends. So I, I have another question just came in, but, but, um, but why don't, but what, what would you say, what would be a one or two things that you, one could do to train ourselves and, and others, um, to be able to respond to beauty, to cultivate a, a, a understanding of the beautiful and to be able to have enough, um, I don't know, courage perhaps to say, well, I really like that song. It's not very beautiful, but I like it and make the distinction between what you are, ple- what's pleasing to you, what you like and what's actually beautiful. What, what, what's there some, what are some things that you use in teaching people to cultivate that? Right. Well, I, I believe in great texts in a way that, that some people don't. I was just listening to Alan Jacobs on the Trinity Forum, and he was saying, like, be scared of great books because even the Nazis, you know, listen to Bach. Well, I think that great books can have a great effect on you. I think they can be resources in the pious person. I think they can be manipulated by impious people. But those who are actually seeking what you're talking about, right, to actually understand what is beautiful and good and true, the great books are those resources that they can kind of um, bathe you in those transcendence so that you gain a better taste for them. And that means that you're going to reject things that are unpalatable more often, that you're going to not want some of that lower stuff that, that speaks to, to the worst parts of your character or the worst parts of your taste. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy certain entertainments, but that those don't become your your soul entertainment, or even dominate most of your time. So I tell students this, you know, I'll watch the Marvel comic movies. I'm not going to ever say that those are as great as Shakespeare. And I'm not going to do uh, to watch more of them than I am going to of reading Shakespeare. And I think that's what we have to do is we have to realize like, yes, we're human beings and we're going to want things that are um, unfortunately brainless and, and just enjoyable for the experience, but doesn't have a transformative effect on our hearts but we have to spend more of our time doing the transforming process because we are unfinished and we want to reach a higher end goal than what we started this life with. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Sometimes I say to my children, you know, you can have a cookie, but you don't want to have your entire diet on cookies. Right. So you can have a, a movie there. I think, you know, um, I also tell the children, I'm very kind of serious about this. Maybe you're going to disagree, but I say, listen, you know, I've told them, you can't watch the Lord of the Rings until you read the book at least like three to five times. Some, uh, and you can't watch any of those um, Lewis movies uh, unless you read the book about eight times. And you cannot read the Star Wars books until you've watched the movie five times. Okay, because the, so I don't know if you disagree with that. But um, so here's a here's a question. See, so you agree? I knew you would agree. Okay, um, I didn't even give you a chance to respond. Okay, here's a question from JJ. How do we get people with opposing views to be open to engaging in genuine dialogue? Many people think that they have won a political argument because they shut the other person down. Okay, well, it's going to be almost impossible to talk to the heart of heart. I mean, you look at the story of the exodus of Pharaoh, and it is almost impossible to talk to those who are heart of heart. Um, at the same time, I think beginning with questions is a better place than trying to propose your way of thinking. The more questions that you can ask people and let them express themselves, you're showing an openness to this dialogue, and you're going to show them in, in turn how to respond to you. The hope is that the more that you are modeling for them, that you are open and that you are humble, they're going to respond in turn. It may not work, but it's better than attacking them because all you're going to see is that they're going to attack in return, right? The, the kind of dialogue you want to have needs to be started first by you. 
You know, I, I think you make that's an important point on questions. I think not just rhetorically. And by the way, I can tell your dog wants dialogue with you right now. So that's good. That's okay. I have a little puppy that just like wants. <laughs> that's good. We're, I mean, we're in dialogue. All right. Sorry. There you go. See? Sorry, dog. There you have it. I love it. Okay. So <clears throat> feel free to keep the dog involved in this philosophical discussion, although it is dogma that dogs don't go to heaven. But I don't want to talk about that. Okay. So here's the, I think your point on question is actually really important because one, I think rhetorically it, you, you're engaging in questions, but two, that questions are part of the philosophical project, right? And so Marx has this line that that's not a question for socialist man. And uh, again, I, I, this is like a Ratzinger uh, quote fest here, but Ratzinger has this very famous line where he says that there's a dictatorship of relativism. And, you know, people ask, well, wait a minute, I thought relativism was tolerant, but relativism can only be a dictatorship because it closes the door to the philosophical project of truth-seeking. And so it, it ends up being ideology. So I think, like, both rhetorically, but also I think this is a, a, a key thing that I learned from Solzhenitsyn and Ratzinger and Del Noche and so many other 20th century writers, Eric Vogelin, mm -hmm. like, you have to ask questions. And, and I think yeah. asking questions with sincere questions, not like, gotcha, but a sincere mm -hmm. question, I think, is a really, really important I mean, not to not to play the feminist here, but this is one of the things that I think we could really learn from 20th century female intellectuals, especially within the Christian tradition. So Dorothy Sayers, Dorothy Day, Simone Weil, Edith Stein, Sigrid Unset. You'll notice that in their dialogues, like when they were being interviewed or even when they wrote essays, there's so many questions because mm. they were living in a time where men didn't want to hear their thoughts. And they knew the only way to get those hard-hearted men to realize that the woman had something to say was to begin by letting the men talk themselves out. And by asking a question, it was that level of humility that would actually allow them to engage in conversation. So by looking back at some of these amazing women philosophers, you'll get to get to see that in action. Yeah. Do you have any, any like one or two recommendations for us? Or a YouTube or even a YouTube clip for maybe some, some of them or, I don't, or, I don't have YouTube clips, but books. I would say, I mean, Dorothy Sayers, like are women human too? Like just her very talk is yeah. like a question at first, <laughs> right. right? Like are women human too? And then she engages in a dialogue with her audience. Um, Simone Weil, right. Re, um, reflections, waiting for God. The reflections essay is really good in there. Um, those would be the ones that I would probably start with. I, I love all of them. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, so I want to, you asked a question in the beginning. Uh, and so I got some of the responses. Uh, just maybe you'll have some comments on them. So um, <clears throat> why did you come, why did you spend your, your lunch hour listening to Solzhenitsyn and, and to you speak about him? And so one is I read the book in 2003 and I thought it would be interesting to hear the guest speaker's view on um, youth and their, on, on young people and their leanings towards socialism today. When I taught in public schools, I noticed that young students seemed to think that communism was all caring and sharing quotes. And I tried to tell them about how communist governments were like, what they were actually like in implementation. Um, I'll go through a couple of them and maybe you can respond. But if you have something to like, want to immediately respond, let me know. Um, someone else says, I'm a whole, huge Solzhenitsyn fan, which I think is a, a good thing to be. Uh, greetings from Germany. I would like to learn about the issue of related to dem democracy and propaganda. Um, so maybe why don't we start with those, those two, um, young students are, think communism is caring and sharing and how he wants to talk about co communism as uh, how it was actually. And then from the, the question from Germany, 
What's the issue related to democracy and propaganda? Yeah. So let me let me start with the caring and sharing thing, because I think this is something you see quite commonly. And uh, Dan, Man- Dan Mahoney, if you want to talk about like YouTube clips, look up Dan Mahoney because he he responds quite a bit on these issues. He's, he's a Solzhenitsyn scholar and mm-hmm. um, and he's also the one who helped Ed Erickson edit, edit the Solzhenitsyn Reader, which I think yep. for the Solzhenitsyn band, that's a great book to, to get. Right. Um, the ideas have to be lived out. And so if you look at something again, like Dostoevsky, so talk about a Dostoevsky quote fest. If you look at Dostoevsky, he has this argument between Ivan Karamazov and Alyosha. Really, it's a monologue with Ivan Karamazov protesting against God. And what ends up happening is Dostoevsky doesn't argue back against him. He shows how the ideas are lived out in the Grand Inquisitor who crucifies or you know burns 100 heretics at the beginning of his poem. And then how Zosima actually lives in response to the death of his brother and becomes a Christian and cares for people who suffer and speaks to the ladies of little faith. And so I think what you see there is how are the ideas actually lived out? So you can say theoretically that Russia just did a bad job with implementing communism and that if it was done again, it wouldn't be that way. Or that China just did a bad job with communism. And if it was done again, it wouldn't be that way. Or if Cuba did a bad job with communism, but if it was done again, it just wouldn't be that way. Well, you're arguing theoretically, but every time that you see things actually lived out, that's not the way it's happening. (laughs) The ideas themselves are ideological. They are going to silence other sides. They're not about caring and sharing. They're about limiting the conversation to one side. And they're about silencing violently anybody who disagrees because that's the only way that they can try to implement the system. And so it's the ideas themselves when you watch them, how they're lived out, that you get to see whether something is true or not. And you, you see this in the sake of the Gospels, too. I don't know who was talking there about students or if you have an ability in your context to talk about Jesus. But look at the ideas lived out. Jesus was not important just for his ideas, even though they are revelation. So there's so much significance to them but how he lived them. He was doing something different. He was living something different. And his ideas, when they're lived, as Chesterton would say, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's gone left untried, right? And that's been the major problem. And so I think when you see the ideas played out, um, students will begin to understand the problems with the ideas themselves. And there's no better place to see ideas lived out than literature. And Sultan, I mean, correct me if this is maybe a paraphrase, but Sultan said something to the effect that Lenin is like the embodiment of Marxist thought. I mean, he, he, he makes a direct co- connection between those two. That's not, it wasn't accidental. Right. Well, and same with Stalin. I mean, in the first circle, there's tons of chapters on Stalin where you get to see him and look at how, what these ideas do. They shut him up in a room. He's by himself. He can't hear anybody else's way of thinking. I mean, um, there's that funny movie, the death of Stalin, just, everybody vying for power in a place that was supposed to promote equality. It, it doesn't, and it doesn't actually work the way that it's, it's theorized. Yeah. So there's actually a, a lot, just a, people want to learn about authoritarianism. What one, one more um, comment. Anne says, I find I'm often afraid to speak my thoughts. I'm censoring myself so frequently about true, good and beautiful things, often for a fear of alienating people. And that's one of the reasons she wanted to engage this, Question. I mean, we only have just about a minute or so left, but I think that's a that's a question I think that many of us feel. Like, how do you, how do you say the truth without hurting people or alienating people? And I know a lot of people ask me, like, how do I address this problem or that problem? And I think you hit on the sub- intersubjectivity that we're dealing with persons. But what advice would you have to mm-hmm. Anne, to me, and to to all of us uh, 
listening here today on that question? Sure. So Solzhenitsyn said, live not by lies. I think that's something that's really important is that we have to live not by lies. If you are afraid that your truth is going to hurt someone's feelings, then you just still have to say it. If you're afraid that it's going to hurt someone's feelings, you also might want to consider if it's true <laughs> because maybe it's going to hurt someone's feelings because it's not true. And you're saying something that's, that's incorrect, right? Like, is it, is what you're going to say, help someone live a better life, then go ahead and say that truth, even if it offends them. But if what you're going to say doesn't help that, then is what you're saying true? I think we should always be questioning that. Um, I think you also have to understand where people are coming from before you speak the truth. So Paul was always about speak the truth in love. That did not lessen the truth, but it also didn't lessen the charity. And charity means putting yourself into another person's place. It means a certain level of selflessness before you begin the conversation. So we shouldn't be afraid to speak true things, but we have to make sure that they're true and that they're also coming from a place of charity. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for a great presentation, great Q&A. Um, thanks to all of those who've watched. Before we uh, sign off here, can you just quickly, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter? Uh, yeah, at Wilson on Twitter and also on Facebook. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. And I have a website, www.jessicahootenwilson.com. I also have a YouTube channel where I present uh, a lot of these lectures at least once a year, put out something on Elliot or Brothers Karamazov or this year will be Flannery O'Connor. So. Great. Good. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And thanks to all of you for watching this uh, month's Acton Lecture Series with Professor Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Uh, we'll be having more of these uh, continue. So please check your email, sign up, go to Acton's Facebook, Acton's Twitter, uh, sign up for, subscribe to Acton's uh, emails uh, where you can get updated on all of the events we do. And we're also having soon, Acton University is coming up in June. Uh, it's going to be a lot of different speakers dealing with the complex moral, theological, philosophical foundations of what is a free society. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting speakers coming and panels. Please sign up for that. Of course, unfortunately, because of COVID, it's going to be on virtual, but that means everyone around the world can join in. So go to actin.org for that. And thank you again for this Acton Lecture Series.